Our reading today will be from Luke 7, verses 11 through 17. <clears throat> Soon afterwards, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the buyer, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother, and fear seized them all. And they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea, and all the surrounding country. Let us pray. Dear Lord, please give Pastor Andrew wisdom and power to speak the truth of your word, and please give your church discernment and understanding, leading to change and greater love for your glory. Amen. Thank you, Philip. At this time, also, uh, we have Children's Church, uh, so ages 3 to 6 are welcome to be dismissed if they would like to, and they can meet Penny right there by the fireplace, and she'll walk them to the classroom. Uh, Also, we have back there, we have busy binders for for children uh, to, to play on. There are these white binders back there by the by the entrance, by the Welcome Center. If you want to take advantage of those, please, please do. It's for the kids, not for the adults. Uh, for, the, for the adults, we have the outline in the bulletin. You can play on that, draw on that. <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> so we've, we've heard of wedding crashers before. Well, Jesus was a funeral crasher. And in our text, he crashes into this funeral in Nain. And Nain was a small, way out of the way, isolated town, uh, 20 to 25 miles away from Capernaum, where he was uh, last week, as we looked at the faith of the centurion. And so soon after that, he takes probably a day or two journey, 20, 25 miles to Nain, and he crashes this funeral. Uh, He wasn't invited to this. He wasn't uh, in any way told about it. Uh, but he makes this trip and shows up uh, with perfect timing, as the Lord always does, uh, to be at this funeral. <clears throat> and while he's there, uh, he totally changes the course of that funeral. It goes from being a funeral to a party, uh, rejoicing in the Prince of Life, who has rescued prey from the fangs of death our great Savior, and his great deliverance that we see in this text. Uh, the big idea that I want to drive at as, as I preach and as we think through this and listen to God's word is uh, that in our text that Jesus is radically compassionate. And that you and I as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ must also be radically compassionate 
because Jesus has been radically compassionate to us. So that's where we're going this morning. That's what we're thinking about this morning. And we'll start with this opening point of an impossibly hopeless situation. Uh, We see that uh, in verses 11 and 12, this impossibly hopeless situation. As I said, Jesus walks into the town of Nain and in the middle of a, a funeral procession, they're on the way out of town to head to the cemetery. And of course, all funerals are difficult. All funerals are challenging. No one enjoys funerals. No one wakes up in the morning and is like, all right, today we got a funeral. Uh, far, far from it. Um, this, this funeral was particularly difficult, particularly challenging for this widow. Uh, you can see that she had a very sorrowful past because it says in our text uh, that she was a widow, which is to say she's already walked this trail once before because she, at some point, whether recently or many, many years ago, we don't know, but at some point she lost her husband. That in and of itself is painful enough. So she already has this this sorrowful past of being bereaved of her husband, no doubt, of many years. It's also a very bitter present for her because it says in our text that uh, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother. So losing your husband is one thing, But at least for a time, she had the joy or even the solace of, well, I still have my son. I still have my only son. But this bitter present for her of losing her only son. Now, funerals are difficult. Funerals for your children are brutal. But she also has a very distressing or hopeless future. Widows in Jesus' day are some of the most vulnerable and helpless members of society. The fact that she has no surviving husband or son means that she's very desperate. She would become destitute. She has no way of earning a living. Living. There's no 401k. There's no retirement package. There's no, no, nothing like that in that day. Nothing to protect her. No, no social security. She's all alone. She has nowhere to go, nowhere to turn, no family members to help her. She is in an impossibly hopeless situation. And she's in this impossibly hopeless situation, all this misery because of sin in the world. Scriptures teach us the world was not always like this, that God created the heavens and the earth in seven days, and on the seventh day he looked at all that he had made and said, it is very good. There was no death, no disease, none of that. That's how God created the heavens and the earth. But sin ruined it all. That was the warning that God gave to Adam, uh, that sin leads to disobedience and leads to death. And Adam deliberately chose to disobey God. And so we read in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, that therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that one man is Adam, so sin came into the world through Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. You see, God created all things perfect and good, but sin entered the world through the disobedience of Adam, and death spread to all. Sin is the leading cause of death. Sin is the wrecker of this world. 
The world in which we live is full of sorrow and, and impossibly hopeless situations like we read in our text because of sin. Trouble abounds on, on every side and at every corner because of sin. There would be no sorrow, there would be no sickness, there would be no pain or tears or death if not for sin. There would be no divorce or hatred or jealousy or division or, or violence or rioting or school shootings if not for sin. The world is broken because of sin. The world is ruined because of sin. And pondering this, uh, the preacher of old, J.C. Ryle, uh, wrote this. He said, how much we ought to hate sin. Instead of loving it, cleaving to it, dallying with it, excusing it, playing with it, we ought to hate sin with a deadly hatred. He goes on to say that sin is the great murderer and thief and pestilence and nuisance of this world. Make no peace with it. Wage ceaseless warfare against it. It is the abominable thing that God hates. Happy is the one of mind. Happy is he who is one of one mind with God and can say, I hate that which is evil. Those are strong words. Good words, wise words for our edification. Sin is the cause, the root cause of our misery, our impossibly hopeless situation. Don't play with it. Hate it. And we see in our text how sin has destroyed this widow's life, brought sorrow and pain and loss, and put her in this impossibly hopeless situation. And honestly, we never would have even known about it, this great tragedy, had not this one thing happened, that she's in the midst of her sorrow, she's helpless, she's hopeless, and in comes the Prince of Life. You've got to love that in our text. It's amazing to read. As the, as the crowd of mourners are, are, are gathered around her and, and they're making their way out of town, off to the cemetery just outside of town, they're making their way there, there's, there's another crowd making its way in. And this crowd is full of joy and, and life and excitement because they're following the Prince of Life. Two crowds, one is weeping, one is rejoicing. The first crowd, the crowd of mourners, again was led by a widow who had lost her only son. The second crowd that's full of joy and rejoicing is led by the only son of God. And he's come to make war. He's come on a divine appointment. He's come to rescue uh, this dead man from the fangs of death. He's the prince of life. This is a divine appointment. Predestination keeps perfect time. And we see that in our text. Had Jesus arrived later, the boy would have already been buried. Had Jesus arrived earlier, earlier, he may have still been alive. Jesus shows at just the right time. He is a master of time. He knows how to arrange things. There's no such thing as luck or random occurrences. We talk about coincidences. The Bible talks about providences. And in our text, we see the providence of God. And I don't know why you came here this morning. Maybe you didn't even plan on coming here this morning, but you came here anyways. That's the providence of God. And I don't know why God would have me to speak on this text this morning for you to be here this morning, but that's the providence of God. This right now is a divine appointment that God has orchestrated 
in our lives and for his glory. So that's the impossibly hopeless situation. And into this hopeless situation comes the Lord Jesus Christ. And it says in verse 13 that when the Lord saw her, he saw her. Jesus tends to see people very differently than we do. As I was thinking on this, I, I thought about not, not too long ago when we talked about Levi. Remember Levi, the Jewish man who's collecting taxes for the Roman Empire, who everyone loves to hate, right? Everyone hates Levi because he's a traitor to them. He's, he's a fellow Jew taxing fellow Jews under the, the thumb of the Roman Empire. But Jesus loved him. He saw him and said to him, follow me. He saw people differently than we do. Well, I think also when the disciples uh, saw children uh, as nothing more than a nuisance and tried to shoo them away from Jesus, and Jesus warmly and lovingly welcomed them into his midst. I think of when the huge crowd were clamming around Jesus, kind of like we read in our text here, and, and they're hungry, and the first instinct of the disciples is, send them home, send them home. And Jesus' first instinct is, let's feed them. <laughs> he saw things different, didn't he? And in our text, he sees this impossibly hopeless situation. He sees this small, isolated, out-of-the-way out of, out of town. He, he saw this great crowd composed of musicians and mourners and friends. And he saw the dead son lying on the bier, which is just kind of a funny word to us today. But it's, it's an open, it's not a coffin. It was probably a wicker basket or even like just a plank of wood. It was open. They probably put a, a shroud uh, over the boy, over the man, uh, and carried it on the shoulders. So he sees that. He sees the widow all alone, bereft, lonely, isolated. He saw it all. He perceived it all. Nothing was hidden from him. So it says in verse 13, when the Lord saw her, what he saw led to compassion. He had compassion on her. If you have the New International Version in front of you this morning, I love how they translated this. They translated it, his heart went out to her. That's good. His heart went out to her. Or last week, I shared with you that quote from Warren Wiersbe, who said, compassion is, divine, is defined as this, your pain in my heart. Remember that? Compassion is your pain in my heart. It's actually a verb related to a, a, a fun word to say in the Greek, splachna, which sounds like guts, right? Splachna, your guts go splat, splachna. That's what, that's what it means. It means guts. That's what it means there when it says he had compassion. It means he felt it in his guts, deep down in his guts, compassion. This is no mere, oh, I'm so sorry for you, man. This is a gut punch. That's what it is to him. This deep compassion when he sees her. When he looked upon grief and pain of others, he couldn't look on that without it becoming his own grief and his own pain. And seeing her, our text goes on to say he had compassion with her and he said to her what on the face of it sounds very insensitive. He says, do not weep or don't cry. And it's like, really, Jesus? She, she's already lost her husband and now she's lost her only son. And your first words to her are to say, don't weep. That doesn't sound very compassionate. But it is compassionate because he knows what he's about to do. 
And it goes on to say in verse 14 that then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearer stood still, and he said, young man, I say to you, arise. Now that's, that's fascinating with verse 14. He saw her, he has compassion, he speaks to her, then he came up and touched the bier. Seeing leads to compassion, which leads to action. And he walks up to the bier, maybe puts his hand on it, and the only thing, only thing I can picture in my mind is Lord of the Rings, and you got Gandalf, and you got that demon that he's fighting against, Belrog, and he says, you shall not pass. If you've seen the movie or read the book, and he slams the staff down, I think. That's what Jesus is doing here. He touches the bier. He stops the funeral procession. He's saying, death, you shall not pass. Death, you're not going any farther. He's crashing this funeral. (laughs) And he's here to reverse the sting and the pain of death. Now, before we move farther in the text, I want you to see what's missing. Have you noticed what's missing? As you read that and think about that, what's missing? What's missing is no one asked him to do this. Usually what happens is there's some kind of crisis in their life. Someone's sick, someone's ill, and they send someone off to Jesus, and they ask, say, Jesus, come quickly, help. And that's what happened last week with the centurion, right? The centurion had a sick servant, and so he sends his friends uh, to, to speak on his behalf, and they say, come quickly, and, and, and he does. But in our text, that doesn't happen. No one called for him. No one summoned him. This is Jesus in all his grace taking the divine initiative to make this divine appointment with death and to tell it you shall not pass and to reverse it and to give life. This is Jesus on a mission to seek and to save the lost. Uh, Though you can give some grace here. I, I, I mean, who would have really expected to call for Jesus at this point anyways? Because honestly, at this point, what he's done is he's, he's healed the sick and he's cast out demons. But that's one thing to heal the sick. This guy is dead. So no one thinks to call for him. And he and his grace shows up and says, I have power over death. I'm Lord of life, Lord of death. It's all grace. And so in his power, he says in verse 15... Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up. Man, what would you have done? (laughs) The dead man stood up, sat up, began to speak. I wish, wish we heard what he said. And Jesus gave him to his mother. What power. What authority Jesus has. Not just to heal the sick, but to raise the dead. This incredible Lord with all authority and all power, without limit, without end. What I want us to see for a moment here as we think about this is that this this story, uh, this historical event that happened is is not just a story of a widow who lost her son. It's your story and it's my story. I wonder if you picked up on that as, as you read through it and thought through it. You may not see it at first, but this story is your story because, you see, you and I, apart from faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, are described as spiritually dead. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 says about us, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. 
following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience. You see, you and I were in that crowd headed to the cemetery, and it may take us 60, 70, 80, 90 years to get there, but we're on that way. We are the walking dead. We're, we're walking in our sins, dead in our sins, dead in our trespasses, headed to the cemetery, headed to death. That's the crowd that we're all, by nature, a part of. We're in this impossibly hopeless situation. And just like in Nain, Jesus in his love and grace and power shows up to crash it, to change it, to reverse it. And he shows up in our life. And it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, that God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Are you seeing your story in this? I can remember vividly for me as a young man at the age of 17 and reading God's word and when the word of God made me alive, that by grace I had been saved. I suddenly knew I was a sinner and Jesus was my savior. And I placed my faith and my trust in him. The question is, how about you? Spiritually speaking, every single one of us in this room is in one of these crowds, walking on the way to the cemetery of, of, of eternal death and destruction and eternity and hell. We're walking in the crowd of life, following the Son of God, the Prince of Life. Which crowd are you in this morning? Jesus said in John chapter 11, verse 25, that I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die, Jesus says. Then he asked the question, do you believe this? Do you believe this? Which crowd are you in? Have you placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Today is the day. Now notice in our text what Jesus does after he raises this young man from the dead. It's easy to miss. But it says, the dead man sat up and began to speak, verse 15, and watch what Jesus does. He gave him to his mother. Man, that's beautiful, isn't it? That's compassion. He gave him to his mother. Would have loved to have seen that, wouldn't you? No doubt, the mom hugged him so tight he almost died again. <laughs> Didn't want to let go of him. Tears of grief became tears of joy. But I would suggest to you as I continue to unpack that this story is, is, is your story, it can be your story, uh, that this is a beautiful picture of the happy reunion we're going to have when the Lord Jesus returns and gives us to the Father. A beautiful picture of a reunion in heaven. In John 5, 28 and 29, Jesus has promised that an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. They'll hear his voice and they'll come out. 
You see, the, the miracle in Nain is our story. The miracle in Nain is a small rehearsal of that which is going to happen in the future when the Lord Jesus Christ returns and all the dead will hear his voice and those who have trusted by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ will be raised to a new body and new life and live and reign and dwell with Christ forever and ever and ever. Amen. And we will be reunited with lost loved ones who died with their faith, trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. We will be given back to the Father. This is a beautiful picture of the blessed reunion of heaven that is ours with Christ. It's an incredible text, isn't it? But what I want to drive here just for a moment is and ask you, is is Jesus any less compassionate today? Is he any less powerful today? Is he not one and the same Lord today? And that this morning, he sees your hurt. His heart goes out to you. Your pain is his pain. This is why scriptures call him a number of times the man of sorrows. We read in Isaiah 53, 4, that Jesus surely has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He's just as compassionate and just as powerful today. So I don't know your hearts. I don't know the, the life situation that, that you're in. But I know, more importantly, that Jesus knows it. And Jesus is mighty. And he can change you in it and through it. And he can change your situation if that's his will. If that's what's going to make you more like Christ. And so maybe this morning there's some, some here who have a son or a daughter who have caused your heart to break because it's a prodigal son or a prodigal daughter. And your heart is broken, and it feels impossibly hopeless when you think about it. Maybe your marriage needs to be raised back to life, and you're just saying, man, my marriage is so broken, it's so miserable, it's going to take a miracle to save it. Maybe you think no one knows, no one cares. Jesus knows, he cares, he can revive it. Maybe a close friend has betrayed you, or maybe you struggle terribly with anxiety or depression, or maybe you feel all alone. It's so easy to be in a crowd this size and, and yet still be alone, to feel isolated, uh, to feel uh, far from people. Maybe you need guidance. Maybe you're tormented by shame or guilt. I, I, I don't know what the impossibly difficult situation is you may be facing or a loved one of yours may be facing, but I know that Jesus knows, and Jesus sees it, and Jesus cares, and Jesus acts. And Jesus can change your life. He can change your situation. If you're tempted to despair or give up or just throw your arms up and be like, forget about this. No, put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. He sees, he cares, he acts. Driving a little bit deeper with that thought, not only is Jesus compassionate, but he calls upon us to exercise that same kind of compassion. Remember our big idea this morning is we should be radically compassionate because Jesus has been radically compassionate for us. So listen to a few different verses that are found in the scriptures. 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 and 4 say, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. Praise God that he does that. He comforts us in all our affliction. But it goes on to say, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction 
with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So that's compassion, right? We've received the comfort of God. Now we uh, comfort others with that same comfort. Listen to Ephesians 4.32. It says, be kind to one another. What's the next word? Be kind to one another, then what? Tender-hearted. Guess what? That's the same word for compassion. Splachna, guts, this punch-gut idea. Tender-hearted. Put, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. You see the impetus, the gospel impetus? Jesus did this, now you do it. And then Colossians 3.12 says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, put on compassionate hearts. That's Colossians 3.12. So you see how Jesus is radically compassionate, and now as followers of him, you name his name this morning, you say, I'm a follower of Christ, I love Jesus, then you should have that same compassionate heart for others. To be like Jesus means you see people's hurts and pains and sorrows, and you've got to ask yourself from this text, are you seeing, are your eyes open, are you seeing the hurt and the sorrow and the pain and the impossible situations all around you in the lives of others? It was J. Oswald Sanders who once wrote, Eyes that look are common. Eyes that see are rare. That's pretty good. Eyes that look are common. We look all over the place. We look, 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 look. But do you see what's happening? That's rare. And that's what Christ did, and that's what he calls us to do. I think often of Matthew 9, verse 36, where it says, When Jesus saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them because they were weary and worn out like sheep without a shepherd. I love that verse. Jesus saw the crowds. He doesn't just see a bunch of blank faces. He sees them, and they're harassed and helpless. He has compassion for them. It should be the same for us. It should be the same when you, when you go to the gas station, you fill up your gas tank, and you go in the store and you pay for your gas, maybe you get a few snacks, and the cashier is there. Do you see them? Or when you're walking around Walmart and you find all types of culture and life at Walmart, as you not just look, but you see the people who are there, and you see the people in the line with you, you see the cashier, or the person who cuts your hair, or the person who changes the oil in your car, or whatever it is, as you're living life, as you're walking about doing what you do at home, at the workplace, in the marketplace, are you seeing with the eyes of Christ? Do you see the hurt and the pain? I'm afraid that... uh, Often we don't see, and worse than that, what we often seem to see, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, but what we often tend to see is we see people sin. We're really good at that, right? <clears throat> We're good at condemning. I see what you did there. That's not right. Bad on you, right? We're good at that. We're good at the condemning. We're quick to judge. 
Do you see them with the eyes of Jesus? Oh, to have eyes like Jesus that see past ethnicities, that see past the the tattoos on the skin, that see past the piercing or the, the color of the skin or the color of the hair or whatever it might be, that sees past that, that sees past the politics, sees past red and blue, sees people, sees their hurts, sees their pain. Do you see with those kind of eyes? And in seeing... Do you have deep compassion? It's one thing to see it. Maybe you see it and you're like, oh, that's gross, and you're revulsed, and you, throw, you run the other direction. And I know it's hard to see it and, and have compassion, especially in this world in which we live. I was really hit by this <clears throat> when, I was, when I was preparing on, on this, Tuesday or Wednesday, I forget which day it was. It's the day that uh, in Ukraine, a, a Russian missile hit uh, a mall in Ukraine. A thousand people were in it and hit it. And I forget how many died. It wasn't a thousand, but a, f- a fair number died. So that's the big headline. And then, it, then it, it swooshes over. I'm seeing this on my computer. And now it's a video of a, of a cute little kitty cat. And so at first, <laughs> at first you, you see this, this thing of, of a missile hit a, hit a mall and people are dead and dying and hurt and you feel the horror of it, the, the depravity of it. And then it, it quickly flips to a, a kitty cat like doing this, this thing, trying to be cute. And what do you do with that? How, how do you begin to process and have compassion when the world that we live in is constantly flipping screens and flipping screens and flipping screens? There's no time to digest it and to think about it and to really see it and feel it, Right? It's also hard often to enter into people's compassion like Jesus does because we, we're so task-oriented and, and mission-focused that we tend to see people not as people made in God's image to love and value and encourage and build up, but we can, tend to see them as either someone you can use to accomplish that mission or someone who's getting in the way of you accomplishing that mission or that task or whatever it is that might be. You ever do that? I said it last week, I'll say it again, that that office door is always open, and that's very intentional, because I don't see people walk into my office as an interruption. I see it as the ministry, it's the mission, it's the purpose. People are not interruptions, they are the mission. Maybe they interrupt your mission, that's okay. Jesus was amazing at being interrupted, and seeing, and, and entering into people's lives, and having compassion, and having his heart go out to them. So being like Jesus means you see, you have that compassion, and then you take initiative. It's not just enough to feel it, but you, you moved to action for them, to love them, to help them, to encourage them. And even there, that's dangerous, because maybe you hear this, and you're, you're tracking along, like, yes, 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 I do that, I do that, but Pastor Andrew, I'm so overwhelmed. Because that happens too, right? Compassion fatigue, right? There's so much hurt. There's so much sorrow. What can I do? What can I say? I don't know what to do. I'm overwhelmed with all of this. And we look to Jesus to strengthen us and encourage us, how he inconvenienced himself. He traveled 25 miles out of the way to his little no-name town, Nain, which means beautiful, by the way. There's nothing beautiful happening there that day. He travels out there, inconveniences himself. He also... We see from that that compassion not just inconveniences, compassion gets messy. I say that because Jesus touched the beer. He touched uh, the open casket. You're not supposed to do that in Jewish culture. 
In Jewish culture, that's a huge red flag, huge no, no, no. You never, ever, ever touch that. That's why they're taking it outside the city to be buried in the cemetery outside the city. They're probably doing it the same day he died because he can't stay in the city because they'll all be defiled. And that's why they carry it on the shoulders. And actually, those people who were carrying it on the shoulders were sacrificing themselves for the time they would now have to take to cleanse themselves for the ritual defilement for touching the dead. But Jesus walks in, totally ignores all that, and touches it. You see, compassion leads to messiness. It leads to messiness. How about you? Are you willing to get messy with your compassion? My encouragement this morning, again, would be, what if we all upped our compassion game a little bit? What if we upped our compassion game a little bit? What if we were more mindful of others and their problems and less prone to focus on our own problems? What if we would tend to uh, love others as Christ has loved us, this messy, inconvenienced compassion for others? Can you imagine, Orangeville Baptist Church, can you imagine the impact, the influence that is made for Christ as you and I do this? It's exciting to think about. Imagine if we truly sought to live in this world with the compassion of Christ, and thought about how we spent our time, our money, and how we talk. Imagine uh, what people might think and ask. Imagine with the July 16th, with, with the picnic, right? As we talk about that's a gift to our community. We want to love the community with the love of Christ. That's also a great opportunity to see the people and to love them and to care for them. And hopefully it leads to conversations. They're like, why are you doing this? And we can say, well, you see, there's this guy named Jesus. This guy named Jesus who saw me in my desperate situation, he saw me in my impossible situation, and he loved me. He had compassion on me. He saved me. He totally changed the direction of my life from spiritually dead to walking in newness of life, and he'll do that for you too, and that's why we're doing this. We want you to know that. That's something to get behind, isn't it? What a God we serve. How do you grow in your compassion? Just, just a couple of quick thoughts. I don't want to spend a lot of time on that. But in your notes, I think I left that blank. And if you're one of those people who needs to fill it all in, here it goes. How do you up your compassion game? How can I up my compassion game? Number one, think about how you would feel if you were in that person's position. Right? You want to up your compassion game when you see people? Think about how you would feel if you were in that position. Another way to say that is walk a mile in their shoes. Put yourself in their place. Identify with their struggle. Feel the pain. Allow yourself to feel that, the hurt. Secondly, think about your own sinfulness. That's humbling. Think about your own sinfulness and remind yourself that, you know what, I can just as easily fall into this situation as they can. I'm no different but by the grace of God. Remind yourself of your sinfulness. You're no better. You're no different. That keeps you from being self-righteous. Remember we talked about a couple weeks ago, see your sin first and see it as worse than everyone else's. The third thing you can do to up your compassion game is remember the amazing grace of God that changed your life. Remember that God was slow to get angry with you, that God was patient with you, and God did not give you what you deserved. He lavished his kindness and his mercy and his grace upon you. Don't shake your head at others. Shake your head at the amazing grace of God and allow that to move your heart for others. Fourthly, see others as made in God's image. 
see them as someone that Christ came to save. We just sang that song just before I got up to preach about, don't you see, see, see the lost, see the needy around us, right? Jesus came to save the lost. See others as made in God's image. Don't see them as inconveniences or intrusions. See them as a person. See them as someone desperate for the Lord Jesus Christ. Fifthly, remember the amazing grace and compassion of God that changed your life. And then sixthly, think about practical ways to show compassion. Pray for them. Tell them you care for them. Rejoice with them. Weep with them. Speak graciously to them. Meet any physical needs that you can meet. I know we hit that fast. Those are some ways how you can up your compassion game. So we've seen the hard situation. We've seen the compassion of Christ Now let's see how this all kind of works out, the reaction. Verse 16. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea, and all the surrounding country. It's not hard to look at that and say, okay, here's the right response to when Jesus does what he does. It's worship and witness. We're going to tackle that backwards. We're going to tackle the witness part first, and we'll talk about the worship part, and then we'll tie that into the Lord's Supper, uh, the little cup that was on the seat when you sat down. Hopefully you didn't sit on that. So witness. We've talked about Jesus as Lord, has authority and power over not just the living but the dead. How he can raise the dead to life. He will return and, and raise us to life. And he's also, bigger than that, given us new life in him. We were spiritually dead, we're now spiritually alive. What should be our response to that? <clears throat> our response to that should be, just like we see in verse 17, where it says, this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Our response to that should be, I can't hold this in. i got to talk about Jesus. Every time I open my mouth, I'm going to get Jesus in there. Because I love Jesus, and Jesus had this compassion in my life, and he changed my life, and he can change the lives of others. And so uh, we, we talk about Jesus. Jesus is risen from the dead. He's conquered sin and death and Satan. In Jesus, we have freedom of forgiveness and righteousness and eternal life. That is truth that is too wonderful to keep to ourselves. Amen? Think about when someone gets engaged, right? They're super excited. You don't have to force them to talk about their fiancé. You don't have to guilt trip him. Come on, tell me a little bit. Well, I don't want to tell you about him. When someone gets engaged, the excitement, the enthusiasm overflows. You, you update your social media status, right? You start having conversations about it. You tell everyone you can. You start planning the dates. You plan the wedding. Why do you do that? Because you have a new love. You have a new passion, a new, a new excitement. You don't go for days or weeks or months without ever talking about him. 
It's all you can do to not talk about him. You talk about that which you love and that which you treasure. Our mission as a church is, in simple terms, to multiply, transform disciples. How, how does that happen? It happens because we're so excited and in love with the Lord Jesus Christ and his compassion towards us that we want to be compassionate to others. And part of that includes sharing the gospel whenever, wherever, whoever. Our response to Jesus should be witness, witness, witness. Not because you have to. Not, and I'm not talking cold calling and standing on the street corner or shouting. Maybe there's, there's a place for that for some of us doing that. I'm not talking about knocking on doors. I'm talking about everyday rhythms of life. You're talking about Jesus. It's as natural to you as talking about the weather. <laughs> That's what Jesus should be like for us. Ask yourself, when was the last time you talked to someone about Jesus? Our response shouldn't just be witness, though. It should be worship. It says in verse 16, the fear seized them all, which is to say they were in awe, they were amazed. They glorified God, so the funeral turns into a party, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us. You might kind of scratch your head at that one. Why'd they say that? Until you recognize the geography, that, that the town of Nain was not very far from where Elijah, about a thousand years earlier, also raised a widow's only son to life. And so they're thinking about that, they're processing that, and they say, okay, here's another prophet like Elijah. But they don't stop there. Then they go on to say uh, in that verse that God has visited his people. Which is to say he's taken gracious activity. He's on the move. He's not just, not just showed up and, and saw it. He saw it and he acted. He's visited his people. And so it causes them to burst out in worship and praise and adoration. Oh my goodness, Orangeville Baptist Church, it should be the same with us, should it not? As we think about the Lord Jesus Christ, and, and that's what the Lord's Supper is about, this cup with the, the juice in it and, and the bread in it, these are gracious, timely reminders to us of how we should worship and witness about the Lord Jesus Christ. A great Savior and a great Redeemer who has visited us and redeemed us. And so the, the juice that's in there uh, pictures the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ for our sin. And the little wafer or cracker that's on the top pictures the body of Jesus Christ where he sacrificed himself on the cross for our sin. And so as we look at this and think about this this morning, this, this Lord's Supper, what we're remembering is that Jesus saw our pain he saw our pain. His heart went out to us that your pain became his pain. More than that, your sin became his sin. He spoke life-giving words of life to us. He died on the cross for our sins. He rose from the dead. He defanged death, and he's coming again for a happy reunion with him and all who are believing and trusting in him. That's radical compassion and this is an awesome reminder of that, yes? That's, that's what the Lord's Supper is about. So before we partake in this, I'm just going to encourage us uh, to bow our heads uh, and for you to just have some one-on-one -on -one time with the Lord and think about the text, think about Jesus' compassion, think about different things, the Spirit's working on your heart as, as you ponder this. Thank Him for His compassion 
Thank him for his shed blood. Thank him for his sacrifice on the cross. Thank him for seeing your pain. Thank him for, for all that he's done. Maybe confess to him, you know, Lord, I haven't been very compassionate. Change my heart. Help me to up my compassion game. You've been so radically compassionate for me. Help me to be compassionate as you are. These are just some thoughts, some things to think about, to pray about for a moment or two, and then, then I'll continue to lead us in the Lord's Supper.